At Total Wine & More, find the best gifts for everyone on your list, whether it's a Cabernet for sis or a single-barrel bourbon that dad will love. With the lowest prices for over 30 years, you'll always find what you love and love what you find. Only at Total Wine & More. Spirits not sold in Virginia and North Carolina. Drink responsibly. Be 21. Where can you find the best gifts at great low prices that everyone will love? At Total Wine & More, of course, with so many great bottles to choose from. Find something for everyone on your list, whether it's a Cabernet for your sis, sparkling wine for a coworker, or a single barrel bourbon for dad. And if you need any help, just ask one of their friendly guides for advice. With the lowest prices for over 30 years, you'll always find what you love and love what you find. Only at Total Wine & More. Spirits not sold in Virginia and North Carolina. Drink responsibly, B21. Hi, I'm Kristen McGlory, lifelong genius hunter. Each week, I'm uncovering the recipes that will change the way you cook. This week, I'm speaking with Palestine co-authors Sammy Tamimi and Tara Wigley. We discuss what it was like for Sammy, who hadn't been home to Palestine in nearly two decades, to both rediscover and reimagine the foods he grew up with, how Tara navigated cooking school with 18-month-old twins, and, of course, the genius red shakshuka from their book, where you don't have to worry about getting your eggs cooked just so. Hi, Sammy and Tara. Hello. Hi. Thank you so much for joining. I know you're both in two very different time zones from me, so thank you so much for that. Where are you both right now? I am in Umbria in, in Italy at the moment. I'm here for the last three months. <laughs> I'm an hour behind Sammy in London, in, uh, in England. Got it. And how have you been spending your days? What sorts of things have you been doing since we're all sort of in various stages of lockdown? Uh, I, I am in the middle of the countryside, so, um, and I have uh, quite a lot of friends around here. Uh, so just friends and taking it easy and uh, cooking a lot, um, entertaining, which is really nice. Something that I, I couldn't do in London so much before we left. <laughs> Sammy's setup sounds slightly more sybaritic than mine. I'm, uh, I'm at home with three kids and um, so there's just lots of feeding going on, kind of rolling from meal to meal and dishwasher to dishwasher. But also, I think like lots of people kind of, enjoying the simple life, the kind of removal of the complicated schedule and the sort of too many things going on. So just kind of leaning into to, uh, to cooking and hanging out and um, yeah, trying not to destroy my family. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, no more commute. Yeah, yeah. And it's funny because first, you know, the, our book was due to be published on the day, so literally the day the, the, um, the bookshops closed. So on one hand, it was obviously a sort of a blow for us in terms of the fun we were going to have publicising it together in, in real life and meeting people. But on the other hand, you know, it's a sort of cliche to say at this stage of lockdown, but it's it's then given lots of people the time they normally never have to actually to kind of to kind of cook. And then there's just lots of lots of things about the way that Palestinians cook in terms of kind of homely food and lots of pantry ingredients and just kind of day to day and meal to meal, which means that a lot of people have been cooking from Palestine and other books yeah. during lockdown. So. Well, to get to where we are with Palestine, how did you two first meet and how have you worked together over the years in the Ottolenghi family? Tara has been with Ottolenghi now for 10 years. And when we re, re kind of launched uh, the Ottolenghi cookbook, Tara started working on, on this project. This is when we actually started working together because of the, the Ottolenghi test kitchen and uh, 
Uh, Tara worked also with Yotam in, in his own uh, kitchen at home, develop recipes and all that. But yeah, we, only the last uh, three or four years we've been working directly to, together. Yeah, so before then, I, uh, as Yansami says, I've been in the test kitchen and he's been in the, in the Otolenghi kitchens. Um, and I tried to hang out with him working for a couple of days in the Otolenghi kitchen, but he quickly sent me on my way because uh, realising that I was more suited to the the test kitchen vibe than the professional chef vibe, which is a very different different kettle of fish, I quickly realized. So how did Palestine come to be a cookbook? And, you know, was the vision for it very clear from the get-go or has it kind of evolved over time in this intense process as you're talking about? The idea started a long time ago. I mean, I had it in, in my kind of uh, head for a long time because I left so many years, like 22 years uh, now and I, I always kind of uh, had the Palestinian cooking and food as a kind of backup to my career and I kept borrowing uh, things to make it a little bit more interesting with the ingredients with recipes that mama used to cook I felt like I, I needed to well, give a little bit back and also thank you know the place and the, the people and the wonderful food that they had my family and my mom of course uh, so the, the, the process started uh, Four years ago, uh, when uh, me and Tara kind of sat down and said, okay, so what are we going to do? And I came with this 500 kind of recipe titles. We started with uh, me kind of trying to be quite loyal to the traditions and uh, recipes, but then quite quickly we realized that this is not what we wanted to do. We wanted to do something that people can actually cook on a weekday. Uh, it meant to be also for busy moms and families and people like Tara where she, she had three kids and she doesn't have the time to spend three hours doing one dish. I love, I mean, I love recipe books because they all just tell such a different story, don't they? So all the books that are in the market, the Palestinian recipes, uh, everyone's telling their own story, whether it's the story of the recipes that were handed down to them from their, their mothers and their grandmothers or they're writing a recipe book for their children if they might be living outside of Palestine now. So this way to kind of preserve the legacy and tell the story. And then Palestine is very much the story that, that we were telling, which is kind of in part Sammy's story and his love letter home to a country that he left over 20 years ago. But we also didn't want to tell the sort of, not just Sammy's story or even just one story, which is why we've got all these profiles in the book of different people in Palestine and, and our way in was sort of telling lots of stories about lives being led today in Palestine. and. And this idea of kind of stories and recipes and narrative is constantly weaved throughout the book as recipes in a way of stories. And, and also people, people allow for complexity and contradiction and paradox and sort of just allows for the, the reality of that. So you can, you can be someone who's really hopeful and enterprising and dynamic, doing really exciting things in a situation which is really hopeless and depressing and bleak and these two things can coexist. So you can go to a refugee camp and acknowledge the reality of that and think about it and talk about it and ask questions. But then you can meet someone living and working and creating a cookery school in that same refugee camp and walk out feeling like you've met the most kind of sort of joyous person you've met in weeks. And, and just Shakshuka, for example, it's a story. It's, it, every time it's passed on from one person to the next, uh, details change. Uh, and some, some things remain and some things stay the same, but the essence will will kind of hopefully be there. So uh, without sort of laboring this metaphor too much, I think it is one that's what's kind of true. And the story that we're telling in Palestine is many stories about 
the life being lived today. You know, I think there's often people have nerves about their ignorance about a country and a region and the people and and you can get to a point in life where you sort of, sort of stop asking questions because you don't want to come across as the, the kind of idiot who doesn't know the difference between one place and another or um, or sort of what's what. So I think I think it's kind of we sort of reached out to hold people's hands and I think they're they're kind of coming along not only for the recipes but also for the stories. And our hope is that people kind of go, you know, go with this book under your arm and go and go and meet people at the Tainted Nations, go and get a lesson from Islam, go and find Vivian. Like these people are there living, working today. So once we're all kind of free to travel, that's yeah. that's the hope. It's people go and explore and ask questions and eat. <laughs> Absolutely. It also really struck me that you mentioned, including in some cases, profiles in the book with views that you didn't necessarily agree with. How did you make that decision? Was, you know, was there anyone that you didn't consider including because their views were so different from yours? No, I mean, we, we met quite a lot of people and uh, the people that we uh, chose to feature in the book uh, I mean, some of them became almost like friends. We loved the stories as well. And it kind of inspired us to, you know, because, you know, the harsh reality there and the kind of difficult living. But at the same time, these people are thriving and doing something positive. And many of them kind of do it with a big smile on. And it's kind of humbling in the same time but also quite uh, inspiring to, to see. It wasn't so much about agreeing with, you know, our vision or, but, you know, we just wanted to feature people that we thought for readers to, to, to read the stories. And also, who, you know, who are we to judge? Like, you, you can't judge people who are living in a situation that you are living outside of. And we had this, these two great evenings where we, we hung out with two very different male restaurateur sort of chefs and, um, on the first evening we were in Haifa with this kind of hip young guy who just was just a lot of fun, incredible food, but he absolutely wouldn't be drawn on any sort of political commentary. He wouldn't even say what he identified as in terms of being Palestinian or Palestinian Arabic. He just, he just wasn't interested. He just said, it's just food, it's business, and it's, I've got a family, and he wouldn't be drawn. Um, and then the next night we went to Nazareth and we had dinner with an older guy, Daha, and, and for him, food was nothing but politics from the minute we walked in to the hours later when we were finally allowed to leave. Um, everything, everything, everything was politics from the music to the food we chose and, and he had opinions on everyone. He'd be a divisive character. Some people might not sort of go back for their second meal there. But who are we to judge? You know, this guy is in his 60s and he's been he's been sitting there watching it feeding it sort of serving it for, for years so and they're both just approaching food and business and restaurant in a very different way but they were sort of 20 miles away from each other and he was quite scary though <laughs> <laughs> I love that position and uh, that you may not have been prepared for it after your previous uh, evening Oh my goodness. Well, yeah, because we drank too much the night before because it was Sammy's partner's birthday. And then we all decided not to drink in the second night. And then we walked in. And the first thing he said is, I hate it when people come to my restaurant and don't have a drink. Who goes out for dinner and doesn't have a drink? <laughs> okay, three beers. Crack <laughs> <Right> on. <laughs> this is the Genius Recipe Tapes. We'll be right back. 
You reach for the top olive oils and invest in the best pans. But in the kitchen, how well do you care for your greatest tool, your hands? When mine take a beating cooking and cleaning, which is often, I use Bag Bomb to work its wonders on my poor, distressed skin. Created 125 years ago on a Vermont dairy farm, their soaps smell great and clean hands without stripping moisture, and their fast-absorbing lotion means I can quickly get back to cooking. Treat your hard-working hands to Bag Bomb, every chef's best friend. Use code FOOD52 for 20% off your order on bagbomb.com. Good through 2024. You reach for the top olive oils and invest in the best pans. But in the kitchen, how well do you care for your greatest tool, your hands? When mine take a beating cooking and cleaning, which is often, I use Bag Bomb to work its wonders on my poor, distressed skin. Created 125 years ago on a Vermont dairy farm, their soaps smell great and clean hands without stripping moisture, and their fast-absorbing lotion means I can quickly get back to cooking. Treat your hard-working hands to Bag Bomb, every chef's best friend. Use code FOOD52 for 20% off your order on bagbomb.com. Good through 2024. The updates that you've made to the recipes, how did you decide what the right amount of updating was? Was that complicated for you? How did we do? I mean, it's kind of, um, it, it's, uh, kind of it happened organically in a way because, uh, um, I mean, I grew up with Palestinian dishes where I know that they are delicious, but a lot of time the, the dish or the, the end result of the dish is kind of this beige or brown um, thing that you know you just put on a plate and you know it's delicious but it doesn't look appealing so we had to kind of emphasize on that uh, and try to take some of the elements that goes into the dish sometime you know adding other elements to, to the dish to make it a little bit more um, appealing a little bit more complex as well there are recipes that uh, they're not uh, purely Palestinian, but we wanted to uh, try to do something that it's a little bit new and fresh. Also, a, a lot of the Palestinian dishes take quite a lot of time to, to prepare and cook. And people don't really have the time. I mean, nowadays they do, but the idea is that, you know, you just come back from, from work after a long day and you just want to do something in 20 minutes. But again, as with as with the words, like the sense of responsibility of, of kind of, you know, we have this section within next to our recipes called playing around and, and uh, you know, if, if alternatives are, are suggested. But, you know, we know that actually it's not as simple as just playing around if the recipe is tied up with your identity. So we were very sort of aware of that. And so the ingredients, there's no kind of left field ingredients. And Sammy very much held the line if ever I would sort of suggest that quinoa might work instead of bulgur wheat, for example, if someone was sort of gluten-free, he was like, this is a book without quinoa because we do not have quinoa in Palestine. So, so yeah, and, and then also not wanting to include ingredients that people can't get hold of. So there's a traditional Palestinian dish called mansaf where uh, lamb is cooked in this sort of fermented disc of sort of yogurt called jammy. You really can't get out of Palestine, outside Palestine. And we did, we want the books to be very, very kind of practical and used by people. I loved that you especially noted that the hummus that had been published first in, in uh, the Jerusalem cookbook, that that had not changed. I actually wrote about that recipe back when Jerusalem came out as a genius recipe back in 2013, after some Food 52 community members raved about how life-changing it was. And I know it, that technique came from your grandmother, right, Sammy? Yeah, I mean, there's no need to change such a recipe because it uh, worked wonderfully. And it's, um, I mean, what I hear from people is one of the best hummus uh, recipes. And yeah, the idea is not to, to change things uh, totally. I mean, the topping changed, uh, but that's kind of something that uh, I would also do at home. If I do hummus, I would just do a different topping every time. We kept uh, true and loyal to, to the tradition. And there's quite a lot of traditional recipes as well in Palestine. 
so uh, if, uh, for for people that kind of start or that they, they are not familiar with the Palestinian uh, kitchen, uh, there's there's everything for them in the book, from you know new to to the very tradition. And yeah, I mean, it's just like I just I was just talking to my sister the other day about the book, and it's like you know all the Palestinians know how to cook the dishes. I mean, you know, all these women that cook at home, they they know already how to do them. They don't need a book. But she said it's actually nice that there are quite a lot of new recipes that she doesn't even know. (laughs) And this is what Palestinians will be cooking, which is, uh, it's quite a sweet uh, thing to say. So, Sammy, I know that you have said that you were sort of shooed away from the kitchen as you were growing up. I'm curious, I have a lot of questions about that, actually. I mean, did that make you want to cook all the more and then things like your your grandmother's hummus technique how did you learn that and incorporate it into your cooking later on yeah, no i mean uh, you know the the, the curiosity and the, the the passion to um to know about cooking and you know uh, it was there the whole time since i was a little kid and you know i, I did kind of sneak into the kitchen and we shushed out and um, but um i i actually didn't know that i wanted to be a chef until I was kind of 17 in a hotel. And um, yeah, and going back to, to the hummus recipe, it's, uh, this is what the Palestinians do wonderfully, where, you know, the hand, it's the tradition, it's also the cooking techniques and also the way they preserve and they want to keep the, the recipes alive. So they hand them from one generation to another. Uh, so my mom basically inherited this kind of method cooking almost from my grandma and it moves on to my sisters and I also kind of borrowed it from the family so it was it was already alive and everybody's making it at home I just have to basically take take a step and just say okay this is going into the book (laughs) because all the cooking at home is done by women in Palestine sort of when Sammy was growing up but also today and I just love Sammy never says it himself so I have to say it but I, I just I think it's amazing that the person who's teaching the world to cook Palestinian food is a man because it's really unusual. It's just a really rare thing. And, and then, so it's amazing to think of that little boy being just, just out the kitchen, that he's going to be the one who, who just teaches so many people how to cook Palestinian food at home. It's, it's amazing. I'm so sad we haven't got any excuses anymore to travel to Palestine. <laughs> the last kind of five years, I feel like I've been there every year. And uh, in fact, we have a joke at home that, Whenever, because I went, I, I left for Palestine one morning before one of my kids woke up and he woke up and he's like, where's mom gone? And, and my husband said, oh, she's gone to Palestine. And he just thought I was going for a run. So now whenever I go for a run, I have to write a note saying, I'm going for a run, brackets, not to Palestine. <laughs> of the many different ways that you gathered recipes for this book, where did this one come from? Uh, this came actually from, from my, uh, my family. We haven't had the, the shakshuka, the traditional shakshuka that you kind of see. It's kind of um, scrambled eggs into um, onion and tomatoes. And actually, sometimes they call it uh, egg, egg and tomato. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's rooted probably from Turkey or from the Ottomans, where they do almost the same thing, but they add also butter on, um, on top. Um, so, yeah, shakshuka for me as a kid, it was uh, uh, scrambled um, eggs into into tomato and, and onion, and we added other element to it too. Uh, we uh, at home we used the uh, ground spices, but the recipe asked for 
toasted whole spices and the feta as a different element and texture as well. It's such a good example of one of the recipes in that book because it's like it's something that Sammy would have had as a child in, in a sort of simpler version without all the toppings that he brings to the test kitchen with his kind of his memory and the technique. Um, but then once it gets into the test kitchen, then we then we start kind of playing around. So that that I think the evolution is so demonstrated by this recipe. Yeah. And we actually started the, uh, the list, we had three shakshukas, remember? We had yellow shakshuka, we had green shakshuka, and then the, the, the red shakshuka, I, I wanted to do like, you know, the, the way I had it as a, as a child, which is uh, scrambled. Well, and the, the thing that really drew me to the recipe at first is that obviously like a, a poached or braised shakshuka is theoretically very simple to make as well. But I think that some people are intimidated to get their eggs just right. They're worried about overcooking them or undercooking them, or maybe like summer over summer under. So the, and I happen to be one of them. So I was really drawn to the idea that with scrambling, you have that much more control. I'm curious if that crossed your mind at all when you were including it. Yeah, and also, uh, I mean, a lot of people also um, don't like very runny eggs, which is um, another kind of uh, thing that I had in mind. I'm a pathological recipe quadrupler. So I, lo- I also love shakshikas, but particularly the red one in that you can just quadruple the base and then you've got a kind of supper in less than five minutes because you can just add whatever you want to the pan and then yeah. and then slowly scramble your eggs through it. And there's something about it too that's very gentle to scrambled eggs. It uh, it's I think it's very hard to overcook scrambled eggs when they have such a delicious. Yes. I mean the the sauce does help it and you know kind of uh, make it uh, keep it uh, moist for you know the whole time even you know uh, when it cooled down. I mean I remember I had some the next day and it's still delicious to eat. I was feeding it to my daughter the next day and she didn't oh. seem to mind. So <laughs> I also- enjoyed it <laughs> when are scrambled eggs good leftovers yeah except for in this dish completely. I, I love it when people say that uh, kids kids love them i took my kids to sammy's house for lunch once i was like right kids the thing about sammy he's quite a good chef and quite a well-known cook so whatever he puts in front of you you gotta eat <laughs> They did. <laughs> uh, did that work? Yeah. It did work, yeah. It did work. <laughs> Simon was like, your kids are really well behaved. I was like, they were terrified. <laughs> Actually, speaking of, of kids, I saw when they were 18 months old, you went to cooking school and brought yeah. them along. And I, my daughter is 18 months right now, and I just have to, my, my hat is off to you. I know. Well, my, my hat is off to myself as well. I don't know what I, I don't know what I was thinking. I mean, the things you do in the moment. And then I look back a few years later, and I was like, wow, that was pretty punchy. And I took this great big dog that we picked up in Bosnia, who was basically a wolf, which we didn't realise until we brought her back to the UK. And um, I don't know if it's having twins just made me sort of negligent. And I just found this, this child mind in the local village and she charged about four pounds a day per child. And she had this great big fish tank. And I think these kids just sat in front of this fish tank for about three months. <laughs> and... Uh, but yeah, no, I have to say, looking back on it, I think that was a punchy move. But I don't know, I, I thought I turned up and that everyone would be at cookery school with kind of families and husbands and dogs and just everyone was completely by themselves and either sort of 18 and fresh out of school or sort of 60 and recently divorced and didn't know how to cook eggs. And, and I was just sort of bang in the middle. But yeah, sometimes you just got to jump. I find that so inspiring because, I mean, we had to jump in that we just moved cross country, but in, in elective ways, you know, I, I find myself trying to, to be like, wait, no, I don't know if we can do that because I don't know if she can handle it and I don't know if I can handle it. And like, you have just proven, yes, like you can handle it. You'll figure it out. Yeah. I think, I think the logistics all work out somehow. I don't know. You can get kind of with kids kind of obsessed by logistics and, and actually 
you just got to just plow on and just everyone can just sort of run and catch up somehow. Thank you for that. And thank you for sharing that story too, because it's for all of us other people who are just trying to make it work with young kids. It's quite inspiring. (laughs) Well, they're 12 next week. Everyone's made it to this age. (laughs) (laughs) Amazing. Thank you both for spending a good chunk of your evening with me. I hope you have a lovely rest of your Sunday. Thanks for listening. Our show was put together by Coral Lee, Gabriella Mangino, Alik Barsumian, Ayana Long, and me, Kristen McGlory. You can find all the Genius Recipes videos and stories at our site, food52.com. And if you have a Genius Recipe that you'd like to share, please email it to me at genius at food52.com. I am always hunting. If you like the Genius Recipe tapes, be sure to rate and review us. It really helps. See you next time.